Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. This past January, Virginia became the 38th state to ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, which means that the amendment has finally been approved by enough states to be made part of the Constitution. Finally, because members of the National Women's Party wrote the original amendment in 1923, and it's been 48 years since it was passed by Congress in 1972. But there's still a long way to go before gender equality becomes an official part of the U.S. Constitution. Julie C. Suk, a professor of sociology, political science, and liberal studies, and the dean of master's programs at the Graduate Center CUNY, reveals what she's learned after spending over 10 years studying the ERA, tracking its progress in the U.S. and similar amendments in European countries in her new book from Skyhorse Publishing called We the Women, the Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment. And I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Suk to our show now. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Haven't its opponents, uh, the opponents of, of ratification seized on two issues, that the original deadline for ratifying the amendment was in 1982, uh, although um, Nevada voted to ratify it in 2017, Illinois 2018, and, and as I said, Virginia just this year? Yes, so that's one of the major sticking points right now. And actually, the original deadline was 1979. And that's important because Congress actually voted to extend the deadline to 1982 once before. Uh, Congress took that vote in 1978, and that's why the deadline uh, was longer. And by that same theory, Congress can extend the deadline again. And the House has actually already voted earlier this year to remove the deadline altogether. Uh, but the Senate has not yet followed. But the other issue is that five states, Idaho, Kentucky, Nebraska, Tennessee, and South Dakota, have rescinded their ratifications of the ERA. What reasons did they give for rescinding it? Well, I think that some of those states, including Nebraska, were one of the first to ratify. So the reasons that they gave were the, the composition of the legislature changed by the time they took the vote to rescind, and they claimed that they had a new understanding or a, a different understanding of what the ERA would actually do by the time they took their votes to rescind. And that actually highlights a very important issue, a very relevant to the ongoing story of the ERA, Law has changed a lot since 1972, and law around sex discrimination has changed a lot since 1972. So some of the reasons why one might support or oppose an Equal Rights Amendment today are actually different on both sides from the way they were in the early 1970s. And on top of all of that, hasn't the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel released a memo saying it doesn't have the power to change the deadline? They wrote, I'm quoting, we conclude that the ERA resolution has expired, it is no longer pending before the states, and it instructed the uh, National Archives and Records Administration not to recognize Virginia's vote as the 38th. Uh, ratification. Has anyone in the, in the Trump administration explained why it's come to that conclusion? Well, it's actually a very extensive memo that was issued in January of this year by the Trump administration, the Office of Legal Counsel. And their theory is that it expired in 1979, actually, and they think that Congress doesn't have the power to extend the deadline at all. Uh, but I should say that the Constitution uh, prescribes no role whatsoever for the president or the executive branch in making a constitutional amendment. It's actually under the rules of the Constitution in Article 5 itself. 
It's really for Congress to propose amendments and for the states to ratify those amendments. And one understanding of that setup is that Congress can, in proposing amendments, also prescribe the time frame in which it's done. And that's something that Congress has done uh, many times throughout the 20th century, although there are some amendments, including very notably the 19th Amendment, which guaranteed women's right to vote, that had no deadline at all. That is, Congress has discretion over these mm-hmm. things. And it's by that very logic that Congress can now just decide uh, that the uh, deadline is no longer applicable uh, by taking action. And half of Congress has already done that, of course. Should I assume that this is going to wind up in the Supreme Court? So it can end up in the Supreme Court because there is litigation going on right now. Uh, The three states that ratified in recent years, long after the deadline passed, Virginia, Nevada, and Illinois, have brought a lawsuit in a federal court in D.C. actually claiming that the deadline itself is invalid, and therefore, as soon as Virginia ratified, the ERA has already become part of the Constitution, and therefore it's the archivist's job to just add it to the Constitution uh, immediately, should have done so uh, a while ago, according to these three states. Uh, And so while that case is being litigated, depending on what the judge says about the matter, uh, surely whatever happens, it can get appealed, and then once it's appealed and a decision's issued, uh, some of the parties might petition the Supreme Court to hear it. How much should I read into all of this that uh, Abby Johnson, one of the speakers at the uh, RNC last week, endorses head of the household voting? Yeah, that's a real 19th century idea. (laughs) Uh, So, of course, and in some ways, of course, the Equal Rights Amendment, when it was introduced, uh, in 1923 was a reaction against a legal system that only gave rights to the head of the household, mm. whether it was over voting in the public sphere or even who controls property that belongs to the family. Women were excluded uh, from all those rights, and that's why the ERA was introduced. And I guess if there are people sitting around in 2020 claiming that it's a better idea to have only head of the households voting, uh, that would kind of go against the 19th Amendment, which was ratified 100 years ago, and it would go against uh, the idea behind the ERA, which is that women are equal, have equal status as citizens in all realms having to do with legally recognized rights. But isn't the current situation a total flip-flop from uh, the past? Uh, Didn't the Republican Party include support of the ERA in its platforms beginning in 1940 and then renewed the plank every four years until 1980? And then, on the other hand, many liberals were opposed to adoption over the years. Uh, The American Federation of Labor, uh, the labor unions, Eleanor Roosevelt and most New Dealers. Also, the Americans for Democratic Action, the ADA, American Nurses Association, the Women's Division of the Methodist Church, and the National Councils of Jewish, Catholic, and and Negro Women. So, sure, it's actually been very complicated, but there was a long period from about the 40s uh, to the 70s where both parties actually endorsed the Equal Rights Amendment. And when it was adopted by significant majorities in Congress in 1971 and 1972, it was a hugely bipartisan issue. So, And I think you are right that early on, like in the 1920s, uh, there were 
some labor movement activists who were against the ERA, not because they were against equal rights, but they were actually worried that a conservative judiciary would interpret the ERA in a way that would be bad for working women in industry. Uh, and there's always been this problem, which is that an amendment that is actually very simple in its proposition, which is that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged uh, on account of sex, that can mean a lot of different things. So it's going to be up to judges or it's going to be up to lawmakers who write new laws to implement the ideal. And uh, depending on their philosophy of what equality means, uh, it's possible that a judge might interpret the ERA to strike down every possible labor protection, even those that are supposed to help the disadvantaged sex or the underrepresented sex. And I think that's what people were worried about. Uh, that's what even people who might identify as feminists were worried about in the 1920s. So in the early 1920s, a lot of women's groups didn't actually support the ERA. And it wasn't because they were against equal rights for women. It was because they were worried that a conservative judiciary would destroy labor rights for women. And it would, uh, invalidate, forward, it would invalidate protective labor legislation for women. But, but the New Dealers felt that the ERA was designed for middle-class women, while working-class women needed government protection. They also feared that the ERA would undercut the male-dominated labor unions, which were a core component of the, the New Deal coalition. It gets so complicated. Yes, absolutely. It is very complicated for those reasons, because if you look at the labor movement's opposition to the ERA, some of that opposition was actually coming from what you might describe as feminists. Uh, that is, they were worried about protective labor legislation for women, uh, but some of it was actually coming from sexists or, or people mm -hmm. who believe that women should actually have a subordinate role. So, so I, and I think that that coalition sometimes together blocked uh, the ERA. And uh, but by the time you get to the mid 1970s, it's really a conservative movement and then a conservative movement that influences the Republican Party's attitude towards the ERA, uh, led by Phyllis Schlafly in the mid-1970s, uh, that opposes the ERA on the grounds that it, would, it could destroy gender roles within the family by encouraging women to have equal opportunities in education and in employment. So is uh, Phyllis Schlafly and uh, that whole stop movement, is that what flip-flop flip the whole thing? Because most Northern Democrats align themselves with the anti-ERA labor unions in opposing the amendment, while Southern Democrats and almost all Republicans supported it for many years. Uh, and then when it looked like it was things had changed and we had people like Betty Friedan writing uh, influential books, suddenly it becomes a uh, the the the, uh, the Northern Democrats suddenly become the supporters and and the conservatives become the opponents. Yes, that's exactly what happened to the exact same amendment. Yes, yes, but what's re really interesting is that you actually have a Southern Democrat, Sam Irvin, who's one of the most vocal opponents in the Senate, and one of the things he he really secures. Uh, there's only a very small number of men who are pro opposed to the ERA in the 1970s in Congress, but he secures that seven-year deadline. That is, uh, when the ERA is first passed by the House by an overwhelming majority in 1970, it actually dies in the Senate. And one of the reasons it dies in the Senate is that Sam Irvin says, why doesn't this thing have a deadline in it? We need a deadline. And it's a way of making a procedural argument to avoid taking the heat for actually opposing women's rights. 
So he made a big deal about the deadline so that when Martha Griffiths, a Democrat in Congress who sponsored the ERA, when she reintroduced it in 1971 in the session that actually adopted it, she actually just included the deadline because she just wanted to kind of quiet and calm uh, the, the most vocal opponents, even though the most vocal opponents were really a small group of people. They were not the, Demo- they were not the majority. They didn't represent what most uh, congressmen uh, or the American people wanted. I was so surprised. Once they, uh, once they got ahead. that deadline in there, though, uh, in state legislatures, uh, the clock was ticking. And in some state legislatures, including Virginia for many years, uh, it would stay in committee. It didn't really get uh, a floor debate. It didn't really get a floor vote. Uh, and so it just, I mean, the ERA, the story of the ERA is in some ways a story of small numbers of very powerful men uh, in state legislatures and in Congress um, using procedural tools at their disposal uh, to prevent real debates from happening. And I was surprised to note that one of those men was New York's own Emanuel Seller, who I always remembered as being a kind of a liberal. But he yes. bottled it up for years in committee. Yes, and I think his motivations were largely sympathies to the labor movement. Uh, and he was around when it was first introduced in 1923. I believe that was his first year in Congress. So he thought that it would be bad for labor rights. Uh, and, of course, in some ways, having rights framed in these abstract terms might have been bad for labor rights before the New Deal. Uh, but I think for whatever reason, he didn't change course on the ERA, even in the 1950s, long after the Supreme Court was upholding labor legislation. Uh, he still opposed the ERA and kept it bottled up in committee. And so they really, so the supporters had to have a discharge petition uh, in order to get it out from his jurisdiction under the House Judiciary Committee. And ultimately, Liz Holtzman ran against him uh, yes. in 1972 and unseated him. And one of the issues that she drew attention to was his lifelong opposition to the ERA. Now, uh, as you mentioned earlier, the House of Representatives passed a bill sponsored by uh, Representative Jackie Speer uh, this past January that would remove the deadline uh, and recognize the ERA as a valid part of the Constitution. But then uh, there's also a bipartisan bill to remove the deadline in the Senate sponsored by uh, Senators Ben Cardin and Lisa Murkowski. But uh, that has not proceeded. Is there any possibility Mitch McConnell will support it? So, well, Mitch McConnell has not supported it to date. He has publicly said that he's personally not a supporter of the ERA. He hasn't really expressed a view specifically about the deadline, because I think it is, it's also true that some people support the ERA, but are concerned about allowing a constitutional amendment to proceed under circumstances where there is a deadline um, that expired or allegedly expired many decades ago. In the Senate, though, there are 48 co-sponsors of that bill. So if there were a few more, but it's, it's basically there are only two Republicans who have supported it. Uh, so unless there are a few more co-sponsors and a majority leader willing to bring it to the floor, uh, it won't actually get passed in this session. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. I'm talking with Professor Julia Suk, S-U-K, uh, about her latest book called, from Skyhorse called We the Women, the Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment. Now, um, 
I was looking back in history. Abigail Adams advised her husband, our second president, to remember the ladies. But that didn't seem to have much of an impact. Uh, the, the, the struggle for gender equality and the right to vote actually began in 1848, didn't it, with the Seneca Falls Convention? Well, I think the Seneca Falls Convention produced a document the Declaration of Sentiments, which was authored by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, which was modeled mm-hmm. on the Declaration of Independence. And I think that because that document uh, was produced, people often think of 1848 as the beginning of the women's rights movement in the United States. But there were surely people who were agitating, women who were agitating for women's rights, including the women's right to vote and other rights uh, before 1848. I mean, Abigail Adams' letter from 1776 is one example, but there were also black women uh, and abolitionists who saw the movement against slavery and the movement for racial justice as deeply connected to the movement for women's rights. So I I wouldn't, but 1848 is still a very important moment because of what gets articulated in that Declaration of Sentiments, where that document really takes uh, arguments that are in the Declaration of Independence, specifically the idea of democracy, that if you are not represented, uh, then how should, if you don't have a say in making the laws, why should you be bound by the laws that get produced? And that was an, a very important argument for why women should have the vote. Uh, and it was also a very important argument for another set of rights that were articulated uh, at uh, Seneca Falls around the rights of married women to not only property, uh, that is property that the family uh, has, uh, but also rights in her own body, uh, the right to refuse sex with her husband, uh, the right to what they called voluntary motherhood. Uh, these were all things that got started in the 19th century and get articulated in that document at that moment. Well, we shouldn't forget that the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal. It doesn't say anything about women. The uh The 19th Amendment states, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any other state on account of sex. But it doesn't say guarantees the right to vote. Didn't many African-American women remain disenfranchised because of that? Yes. So one of the difficulties with our Constitution as a general matter, and it's true of not only the 19th Amendment, but also the 15th Amendment, is that it doesn't really substantively articulate a right uh, to which all citizens are entitled. It just says that whatever rights exist can't be denied because of sex or can't be denied as in, the, in terms of the 15th Amendment uh, because of race. Uh, and uh, as, as a general matter, it just means that the Constitution doesn't do everything possible uh, to make sure that rights are real uh, in practice and on the ground. And so the 19th Amendment said that you you couldn't have your right to vote denied because of sex, but many states denied people the right to vote for a lot of other reasons, Uh, literacy tests, poll taxes. Uh, They gave a lot of discretion to poll workers administering administering those literacy tests. And so what that meant in practice was that not all women could actually vote. Uh, And, um, and, and, In the South, it meant that many black women, and in fact, black men, uh, couldn't vote, despite the fact that we had a constitutional amendment uh, in the 15th Amendment saying that you couldn't have your vote denied uh, because of race. And so I think this really goes to something that's true about our Constitution, uh, which is that none of the rights in our Constitution 
are actually sufficient to make the principle of reality on the ground for everyone. And I think that's going to be true also of the Equal Rights Amendment. Getting the Equal Rights Amendment is not going to be a magic bullet. Uh, that means that tomorrow or the day after we get an ERA, all women are going to be paid equally uh, to men. Uh, but it's very important because in stating the principle, uh, it really sets up a structure and a course for the heavy lifting uh, that needs to happen by lawmakers and judges uh, and everybody, actually, uh, moving forward to make that right real. And I think one of the problems is that the 19th Amendment, uh, on the one hand, it embodies the principle that all women should vote, uh, but the heavy lifting uh, did not happen with regard to all women uh, right after the 19th Amendment was passed because there were many states that were very determined to deny African-Americans the right to vote. Uh, complicating African-American women. Complicating the situation. Didn't Susan B. Anthony campaign against the ratification of the 15th Amendment because it gave the vote to African-American men, but not any women? Yes. Yeah, so Susan B. Anthony was against the 15th Amendment because she really believed, she believed that women that women's right to vote should be included by the 14th Amendment. And she tried to test that by actually going to vote. Uh, and she got arrested and, um, and, so, and tried uh, for trying to exercise her right to vote. And so if there was going to be another amendment after the 14th Amendment, she really wanted it to include women's suffrage. And I think because the 15th Amendment did it, she just didn't support it. And wasn't the right to vote seen as the most radical demand on the agenda at the Seneca Falls meeting? Yeah, so very interestingly, what they really wanted at Seneca Falls was to end the legal system that really failed to recognize women as persons hmm. uh, bearing any rights, including the right to property. So the that demand is a, at Seneca a divorce. Falls really focused. Sure. Divorce, employment, and other matters as well. Uh, as you say, right. property laws to protect women from uh, drunken, dissolute husbands squandering what they'd brought into a marriage. Say, uh, and uh, they wanted the loosening of divorce restrictions because even women who'd been abandoned were often unable to get a, get a divorce. Absolutely. And even if they could get divorced, the real problem was that, in general, uh, women did not have claim to even money that they brought in themselves into a marriage. So if a woman did actually somehow uh, find work outside the home, she didn't earn her, she didn't own her own earnings once she brought money into the family if she was married. And that also meant exactly as you say, if she was married to a drunk husband, he could take her earnings and spend it all at the saloon. And that's why also the movement for women's rights in the late 19th century is actually closely connected to the movement for a prohibition amendment, which is ratified right before the women's suffrage amendment. And so there's a very interesting interplay uh, between the prohibition movement and the suffrage movement in the late 19th century. Uh, but that said, at Seneca Falls, they were concerned about these types of problems. And many women saw the right to vote as, uh, as this thing that could be useful to get rid of all these other problems. Uh, but it was considered a very radical demand uh, because this, this notion that a woman might have equal political status and exist in the political sphere uh, was considered very, very new and outlandish and radical. Uh, but ironically, 
it, we get that amendment, uh, the suffrage amendment, before an amendment that would wipe out all the distinctions in, in the law that kept women economically subordinate, which, would, which is what the ERA was intended to do when it was introduced in 1923. So uh, we're talking about seven decades later or so, September 25th, 1921, the National Women's Party announced its plans to campaign for an amendment to the United States Constitution to guarantee women equal rights and men. And the first version uh, was written by Crystal Eastman and Alice Paul, uh, who then introduced it to Congress in n December 1923. They are really interesting characters. Uh, I, I've uh, known about Crystal Eastman for a long time and wondered why she isn't better known, why she isn't taught in history classes. Such a fascinating history um, on top of all of what we're discussing. Absolutely. Well, I think, I mean, I have some thoughts as to why we don't, Americans don't know as much about Crystal Eastman as perhaps they should. And certainly in many histories of the ERA, we often focus on Alice Paul rather than Crystal Eastman. So one thing I'll say about Crystal Eastman was that she was involved with the National Women's Party, but she was not a single-issue person. You might say that Alice Paul was a single-issue person. I mean, she went on hunger strike for the women's right to vote, and then she devoted all her time and energy into the Equal Rights Amendment. Crystal Eastman, uh, she went to law school. She wrote a path-breaking book on workers' compensation and worked on worker the development of New York's workers' compensation law. Uh, and so she was actually very familiar with the law of the industrial workplace. And she was also very active in the women's peace movement. And she was also uh, very active during World, world War I uh, in defending civil liberties that were, being, that were under attack uh, because of national security. So she actually helped form the organization that became the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, and she worked with several men and women in forming that organization right around this time at the end of World War I. So she was working on multiple issues because she also saw women's rights and women's equality as connected to a much larger agenda of human liberation and equality. And, and so, yet but her, I think brother, her brother Max Eastman is probably better known. They, yes. did, uh, they did create uh, The Liberator, a political uh, and arts magazine together. Uh, but yes, she died young, and that's part of the problem, isn't it? Uh, she died in 1928, whereas Alice Paul lived into the, uh, I think, around 1970 or so. And she actually, lived until 1977, actually, Alice wow. Paul. So she actually lived to, uh, I think she lived to see at least 36, uh, sorry, 34 states, if not 35 states, uh, ratify the ERA. But Crystal Eastman, I mean, the other really important thing to note about Crystal Eastman during this period is that she had two children, and she also married a, uh, a Brit, and, um, and this is actually during a time when, you know, one of the laws that the National Women's Party uh, was so worked up about is a law that said that a woman who married a foreigner actually would lose her U.S. citizenship, even though a man who married a foreigner uh, did not lose his citizenship, in fact, could give his citizenship to uh, his wife. And so that was one example of blatant unequal treatment between men and women under the law. And so she actually, but citizenship questions aside, she actually did move to Britain right around the time that the ERA was being introduced in Congress. You know, she worked on it with the National Women's Party from the time that the 19th Amendment was adopted until the time that it was introduced. So she was actually back and forth between Britain and the United States. 
uh, during this period. Uh, she did write about the Equal Rights Amendment throughout the 1920s, and, um, but she was also involved in the peace movement and in civil liberties, uh, the Civil Liberties Union, which she uh, helped to form, uh, and she had two children. And so I think all of these things uh, made her uh, spread thin in many ways across many important issues, and as a result, her, um, her voice with regard to women's rights and the ERA uh, is not as amplified uh, as it should be in the history books. And, and you're absolutely right. She died. She also died in 1928. Uh, and so she died before the ERA really um, had the life that it did uh, in congressional hearings uh, and floor debates and ratifications. While the, uh, the 19th Amendment and the ERA are obviously related, haven't their histories also been in conflict at times? You note that in at least one instance, the 19th Amendment worked against the ERA in the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Atkins versus Children's Hospital. Uh, that was in 1923. What was that all about? Yeah, well, that's a really interesting case because at the time, um, we talked earlier about protective labor laws for women. So one of the things that emerged in the early part of the 20th century was laws that protected women only, like minimum wage laws that were for women only and maximum hours laws that were for women only. And part of the reason they were for women only was that the Supreme Court, in a famous case called Lochner versus New York in 1905, struck down a maximum hour law that applied to all workers, including men. And so because the Supreme Court was striking down labor laws in general, one workaround was to pass laws that were for women only, and the Supreme Court had been upholding those laws, saying because women couldn't even vote, uh, they were more likely to be exploited, and because women uh, were physically weaker because they bore children, uh, they needed this extra protection. Uh, and so that because of the, there, there was this workaround, uh, but when you get to 1923, after the 19th Amendment goes into effect, uh, the Supreme Court says that a minimum wage for women only is unconstitutional. And they strike it down based on reasoning that they had been using to strike down all labor laws in general, uh, and they point to the 19th Amendment. They don't base their decision on the 19th Amendment, but they mention it in passing, saying the fact that there's a 19th Amendment and now women have the right to vote shows that the gender inequality problem is going away. Um, women are basically equal now that they have the vote, and therefore they don't need extra protections in industry. They don't need extra protections from exploitation. So that's the reasoning of that case. And, of, of course, the practical effect uh, of that decision was that women's wages plummeted because they didn't have a minimum wage law to protect them anymore. And the, no the idea now that they women's wages were going to plummet and that the 19th Amendment was something the Supreme Court cited uh, to arrive at a decision that had that effect made some women like Florence Kelly, who was opposed to the ERA, but a lifelong fighter for working women. Uh, she said that one of the problems with uh, the proposed uh, ERA and the Adkins decision was that it, it, it granted or protected the women's constitutional right to starve. <laughs> and so there's this notion that having rights is really meaningless uh, if the conditions around you make it impossible for you to actually benefit from those rights. 
And I think that's also been true in the movement for the ERA historically, because when the ERA actually gained ground in the 1970s, uh, the Women's Strike for Equality took place in 1970 on the 50th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. And the Women's Strike for Equality really focused on the things that women needed in order to make equality real. Uh, so they focused on child care, actually. We need a federal child care policy. We need affordable child care. And we need reproductive freedom. That's what the women said when they went on strike in 1970, because they thought that having an ERA and having laws that said no discrimination on account of sex would not be particularly meaningful if there was no affordable child care. If so there weren't public policies that reduced the inequalities that women face because of childbearing and childrearing. And you've argued that the ERA is a reason women got a shift in equal protection cases in the 1970s when the Supreme Court began citing the ERA to say that sex discrimination should be scrutinized. Absolutely. So it wasn't the entire court, actually. It was just a few justices, not the majority, uh, but they cited the Equal Rights Amendment in Frontiero versus Richardson, which is an important case because the Supreme Court strikes down a sex classification in the law and points to the ERA to give that decision legitimacy. Uh, and they point, the, the four justices point to the ERA to say that at least this is evidence that Congress thinks that sex discrimination is a problem worth addressing. And the court decides in that case the the justices can't agree on exactly what level of scrutiny uh, is required, but they do agree that some heightened scrutiny of sex classifications uh, is uh, necessary. And they start moving in that direction throughout the 1970s. So they start striking down sex classifications, particularly when they're premised on stereotypes about women and women in their role Mm -hmm. in the family. And um, and so I think the ERA did give a kick uh, in the pants to equal protection jurisprudence because before uh, the ERA was a subject that was being debated nationally, before that moment, the Supreme Court had never talked about sex discrimination as being a constitutional violation. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Org. We have to take a little break, uh, Professor Souk, but stay with us. Uh, first, we're going to uh, listen to a little bit of music, sure. and then we are also going to, uh, I'm going to uh, talk to our audience about something else for just a moment, but we'll come back to this after that. Okay? Absolutely. Thank you. Now you have heard of women's rights and how we've tried to reach new heights if we're all created equal. That's us too. Yeah. But you will probably not recall that it's not been too long at all since we even had the right to cast a vote. Well, sure, some men bear down and call us missiles. Yeah. Let us hang the watch out and wash the dishes. Uh-huh. But when the time rolls around to elect a president, what I want to get back to my conversation with Professor Julie Suk. But before I do, uh, I need to talk to you about something very important. Like most public radio stations across the country, WBAI has been hit hard by the pandemic, and a lot of our longtime supporters have had to drop their financial support for the station, 
which is why I'm asking anyone who's able to in this time of crisis to please step up and make a contribution of any amount to help keep Community Radio and Leonard Lopate at Large on the air and coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And you can do that by calling right now at 516-620-3602 or by going to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's given, then the number two, WBAI.org. Becoming a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BA buddy, BAI buddy, is a really great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time. And we have a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy today in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. If you call 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org today, we would be happy to send you a copy of the book that we've been discussing, Julie Suk's We the Women, the Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment. It's our way of saying thanks for your support, but all you need to do is to call 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai and sign up at the monthly amount of or whatever you're comfortable with. It's taken out of your credit card or your debit card or whatever is easiest for you. And that's it. However you contribute, the important thing is that you step up and support the show and this legendary radio station, the last station on New York's uh, FM dial that's completely listener-sponsored. Uh, we uh, receive no corporate underwriting or, or funding grants of any kind. And we've been around now for 60 years, so uh, we have um, been able to sometimes really uh, struggle through, but we have survived. We hope you'll help us survive this time. So just one last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbaiorg online. Uh, that's uh, WBAI and then the number two WBAI.org. And please make sure that you make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at the station, thank you so much. And we are now back to Professor Julie Suk, who, um, well, uh, you have so many different jobs, uh, Professor Suk. Uh, I am amazed that you had time to do all of this research. <laughs> Yeah, I see you. I read you in the Times, the Washington Post, Vox. I've seen CBS News. Uh, uh, Your article, uh, An Equal Rights Amendment for the 21st Century, Bringing Global Constitutionalism Home, um, was was cited in the report leading to the House's vote in 2020 to remove the, the, the deadline. Yes, the House Judiciary Committee issued a report explaining why it was recommending that the deadline be removed. And so they did cite an earlier article that I wrote in 2017, or that published, that I published in 2017. But the research for this book uh, and for that article really goes back many years. (laughs) You mentioned Phyllis Schlafly. Can we talk a bit more about her? There was a TV movie recently uh, that uh, dealt with this whole matter. Uh, what was it on FX? Uh, and Phyllis Schlafly is painted as the villain. So obviously, at least uh, in the in the eyes of the the filmmakers, uh, we, we knew what side they were on. How effective was her stop ERA campaign, in which she claimed that the ERA the amendment would wipe out legal protections from mothers and wives, 
uh, including the presumption that divorced women would receive alimony and in most cases receive custody of the children. Uh, she, they, she was also concerned uh, that women might be drafted into the military. Um, was she able to convince a lot of people enough to actually uh, convince uh, Congress not to go ahead or some of the states not to go ahead with it? I think she was very effective, but two, I want to say two things about her effectiveness. Uh, the first is that she wasn't effective by herself. She was effective because the opponents in Congress had already built in that seven-year deadline, mm. uh, and they built in that seven-year deadline knowing something how state, about how state legislatures worked, uh, and in some cases having allies in those state legislatures. And in those state legislatures, the committees, that is, there's no rule uh, in most of these state legislatures that requires the state legislature to even vote or debate a federal constitutional amendment. You might think it's pretty important if both houses of Congress get it together to pass a constitutional amendment to send it to the states, uh, but the states can just sit on it and ignore it for as long as they want. Uh, and so it's often it has to go through the state legislative process, which involves the committee sending it out to the floor. So you could have these very interesting situations where there's actually a lot of pop popular support in the state, and you might even have the votes uh, to ratify the amendment uh, in any given state. But if a committee doesn't even allow it to be debated, and that, that committee could be just a handful of guys, uh, then it's not even going to get debated or seriously considered in that state. And um, in Illinois, Phyllis Schlafly's home state, uh, the state legislature actually adopted a rule. And um, one thing people don't know about Illinois is that there were many votes in Illinois where a majority of both houses of the state legislature actually voted to ratify the ERA. But those votes did not constitute a ratification because under Illinois legislatures, under the Illinois legislature's own internal rules, you need 60%, not just a bare majority, uh, to ratify a constitutional amendment. So if you think about all of these structures that are in place, and then Phyllis Schlafly entering the scene with her freshly baked bread and uh, many things she said about the ERA, which were not necessarily true in terms of what the ERA would actually do, uh, then it makes that job of opposing the ERA a little easier uh, if you know you need to um, you just need to cast some doubt. If you're operating under a 60% rule, then you need to just make some create some confusion and doubt. Uh, and that's a good way to kill the amendment, uh, whereas under other circumstances, if it were a bare majority rule, you might have to work a little bit harder to kill an amendment. And I think that it's important to know that, and, and my book tries to draw that out a little bit, because it wasn't Phyllis Schlafly by herself uh, that tanked uh, the ERA. Uh, but that said, she played a very important role, uh, and the role she played was convincing a lot of women, particularly mothers and housewives, uh, that they'd be getting a raw deal under the ERA. And that was actually not true. There were actually Republican women in Congress who were actually deeply concerned about the status of homemakers. Uh, and uh, what they wanted to do to improve the law was to ensure that instead of getting an automatic presumption based on sex because you were a mother or because you were a wife, uh, that courts actually looked very specifically uh, in a gender-neutral way um, as to who really uh, did the... Uh, Home uh, did the work at home. Uh, who was really entitled uh, to uh, get alimony? Uh, and so, taking a rational, gender-neutral approach actually uh, would have led to uh, women retaining their protections in cases where they gave up their uh, opportunities to work uh, in order to raise the kids at home. 
Uh, the other thing is that a lot of the proponents, like Martha Griffiths and Florence Dwyer in the House of Representatives, they were also very concerned about the fact that a lot of women had to work, uh, and if they were going to work, uh, you needed a law that was going to make sure they had the same economic opportunities to support their own families uh, as, as men did. Uh, and so it was actually very pro-mother in that regard, mm. uh, but that gets totally erased by the Stop ERA movement. Florence and then after Dwyer, the military draft, uh, the, yeah. I mean, a lot of the proponents, and I'm, I'll talk specifically about Patsy Mink and Shirley Chisholm, Okay. Uh, they had a very specific answer. These were the first non-white women who were elected to Congress. Uh, they believed that the ERA should lead to the draft just ending uh, because uh, if you actually had to draft men and women, uh, the solution would not be to actually draft men and women, but to really think about uh, why you have a draft at all and whether it's necessary to have a draft at all. And actually, uh, that changed. In 1973, the draft ended, and we actually haven't had a draft since then. Uh, and But I think, that, so this notion that the ERA would necessarily and definitely lead to women being drafted was also mm. kind of a confusing falsehood. Because we were really moving toward a, uh, a volunteer army at that point. Uh, the, 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 the series that we were, we're talking about, that, uh, the miniseries on FX, uh, interestingly, also um, was at the time when Shirley Chisholm was running for president. Yes, absolutely. And what's very interesting about the series is that Shirley Chisholm is just such a fierce and eloquent and brilliant voice on the floor of Congress in 1970 and 71, making a case for the ERA. Um, and that's actually missing from the show. Uh, you mm. sort of see Shirley Chisholm in the show as a frustrated presidential candidate. And I almost wish they had just put Shirley Chisholm's speeches about the ERA into the show. And I tried to do that in my book. And luckily, I mean, one of the things I found so uh, moving about the ratification of the ERA in the 21st century uh, by Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia is the ways in which uh, women in these state legislatures, and particularly African-American women in these state legislatures, quoted Shirley Chisholm's words as they uh, voted to ratify the ERA and as they supported uh, the ERA as a 21st century constitutional amendment. Now, we've had uh, women appointed to the Supreme Court since then, but even today, with women in both houses of Congress at an all-time high, I've read that they represent just 23.2% in the House and 26% of the Senate. So, Congressmen can adopt an amendment while ignoring the will of every single female member. Right. That is mathematically possible because you need two-thirds of both houses of Congress. And what that means, obviously, if you only have 23.7% women, that's very far away from having enough Mm -hmm. to pass an amendment, but it's also far away from having enough to block a constitutional amendment because you need one-third to block uh, an amendment. Now, I think women generally make coalitions uh, in both political parties, and there are a lot of studies that show that simply being a woman doesn't really predict what your politics are going to be or what substantive positions you're going to take. But I do think it's an interesting mathematical fact that even that it's actually, it would actually be possible if they wanted to do it for all the men in Congress to d- decide 
never to bother trying to get any female member to support an amendment. And they could actually amend the Constitution uh, by doing that. In the state legislatures as well, in most state legislatures, a uh, majority vote will ratify an amendment. But most state legislatures, the sole exception being Nevada, Nevada has over 50% women in their legislature, but every other state legislature has over 50% men. Uh, and so we, we are in a situation where under the Constitution's rule for amendment, which is two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-fourths of all the state legislatures, it is possible for men to pass a constitutional amendment and have it ratified without really ever caring what any <laughs> female legislator thinks. Now, I mentioned earlier that you've also looked at the situation in other countries. How does the United States compare? So, well, there are many qu different ways in which you can compare. Uh, the first is just the presence of a constitutional provision declaring or guaranteeing equal rights between women and men. And most constitutions in the world do have such a provision. They're all worded differently. Some of them explicitly say equal rights between women and men. Some constitutional provisions just say there's no discrimination on account of various factors, including sex, right? So they'll say race, religion, mm -hmm. sex, uh, and so forth. Uh, so it's actually extremely rare in the world uh, to not have any provision uh, that addresses this. Uh, and I, so I think the end... The most constitutions that have this provision were written in the 20th century or after. And, um, and so it's become a very common feature of constitutionalism around the world. Although, as we have seen in many countries, uh, uh, groups are discriminated against and women are often treated as second-class citizens. Uh, I, I yes, wanted... this gets back to what we were talking about earlier, though. Just because, because the de facto having a constitutional aspect. amendment is never sufficient to produce real equality. Just like mm -hmm. the 19th Amendment was not sufficient to mean all women could vote uh, on the ground, I think it, it's a mistake to think that the presence of a constitutional amendment is sufficient uh, to achieve equality. And there are many constitutions around the world uh, that guarantee certain rights, but then uh, don't actually respect them. And that's true of women's rights as well as other rights that some other constitutions around the world guarantee. Uh, and so I think that's always a problem that we constitutional lawyers and scholars will always grapple with. Uh, once we have something in the Constitution, what does that actually do for anyone? And I think sometimes we are disappointed that having something in the Constitution doesn't lead to the reality that we thought that the, the right stood for. But I think that's the job of uh, lawyers, uh, lawmakers, and most importantly, voters uh, mm -hmm. in voting for their lawmakers uh, and in voting for lawmakers who vote on constitutional amendments or ratify them uh, to really be vocal about why they care about these constitutional rights and what that means and what they think the plan should be for uh, getting us closer to the reality that uh, those amendments um, foresee inter as a matter of principle. And then you have the courts to contend with, and right now the Supreme Court uh, probably is most conservative in many decades, uh, and uh, at least one uh, member has been accused of uh, uh, being something of a sex offender. So uh, these are other things that we have to consider when we look into the future. Absolutely. 
So this is another reason why I think that getting an equal rights amendment is not going to be the be-all and end-all of gender equality in America. Uh, that is, it's going to be interpreted uh, both by lawmakers and by judges. And um, But I will say that one thing that makes the ERA distinctive as an amendment that really gets written in the 20th century and adopted by both houses of Congress in the late 20th century and ratified in recent years is that it has a much more modern understanding of rights and equality than it might have had if it were adopted or in the mix at the founding of the U.S. Constitution. And what I mean by that is that it's more modern in the sense that the women who proposed the ERA in the 1970s, they actually did not think that this was going to be the kind of right that would just be handed over to the Supreme Court uh, to interpret by themselves. They thought that if you actually wanted to have equality of rights in the Constitution, it would be the job of Congress and the state legislatures to make it real. So once it was in the Constitution, there would be a time when the legislatures would really think about what they needed to change in their laws to make sure that they had laws that guaranteed equal rights without denial or abridgment because of sex. And that meant not only getting rid of laws that explicitly treated men and women differently, but also uh, being very thoughtful about the laws that you have on the books that disadvantage women in the dynamics that they create uh, and, uh, and rewriting those laws and um, adopting real public policies to make sure that equality is real, such as childcare legislation. That understanding where you have more of a partnership between legislatures and courts, I think that was part of the ERA's design, and you see that understanding also repeated in the floor debates, especially in Nevada when uh, the ERA is being ratified. And I think that's very important because once the ERA, if the ERA actually does get added to the Constitution and then it gets litigated before the courts, the courts will have to interpret it not only uh, in terms of its words or in a vacuum, but with an understanding of the rich 100-year history of its making. And that history involves this vision of uh, the ERA's meaning uh, that involves, first of all, the inequalities that women face because they are mothers, uh, and second of all, a partnership where it's not just the courts but also the legislatures uh, that are involved in uh, enforcing the amendment. Julie, Julie C. Sook is a professor of sociology, political science, and liberal studies, and the dean of master's programs at the Graduate Center CUNY. Her book, From Skyhorse, We the Women, the Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment. Thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank and, you so uh, much for having me. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. And unfortunately, that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopez at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopezAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. If you'd like to comment on any of our shows or you just want to say hello, you can reach me directly at my email address, LeonardLopez at WBAI.org. Uh, we, uh, uh, we ask you to try to consider becoming a member, uh, but I've run out of time. I hope you can join us again tomorrow when Christian Parenti will discuss his book, Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder. We'll see you then.